Hello, Grizz Nation, and welcome to the very first edition of Revisionist Grizzdry. Yes, that is a play on words with Revisionist History because we are going to go through some of the biggest events in Grizzlies history over this quarantine period, maybe in the offseason whenever we get it, and just go through just kind of like a what if this happened, what if that happened, and just basically try to rewrite the course of history as we know it. So I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is going to be my regular guest, for this show, and that is Connor Dunning, the producer of the Giannato and Jeffrey show every day on 92.9 ESPN from 2 to 4. Connor, what's up? Hello, sir. How are you? How are you holding up? You know, we're just out here. Well, not really out here. We're really in here. Quarantined. <laughs> we're just trying to yeah. build content. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I was I've found myself watching hours of disc golf, dodgeball, and I'll even say tag on YouTube just to try to get a sports fix in. I completely exhausted all of my basketball highlights within the first forty eight forty eight hours of quarantine. So now I'm just I don't know what to do now. So thank God we're doing this podcast. I can't wait. Sounds like a bunch of fun. Absolutely, and the first podcast we'll run on this is on the 2011 Grizzlies playoff run. And in case you weren't a Grizzly fan around this time, um, this is the first playoff run of the grit, grit and Grind era. And it's really where, you know, Zach Randolph, Mike Conley, Tony Allen, Marcus Hall really staked their own as the core four. Um, they made a historic uh, upset against the San Antonio Spurs as an eight seed and then took an upstart star-studded Oklahoma City Thunder team to seven games in the second round. And there we really just got to see Zach Randolph blossom into this bonafide all-star and really a top 10 to 15 player in the league. And, you know, it really just dictated a lot of what happened for the grit and grind era. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know. It may not just dictate it, but I think it was probably the beginning of the grit and grind era, probably the true beginning of the grit and grind era. Yeah, we had, like, they had that run the year before where they almost made the playoffs, but they barely missed it. But this season was, like, the true beginning of, of GNG. It was the first time I remember the city really being like, okay, the Grizzlies, because they had had playoff runs in the past, but there was something about this team. The 2010-2011 Memphis Grizzlies identified with this city so well that when they went on this playoff run, when they beat the San Antonio Spurs in the first round of the playoffs, from that moment forward, every single person in Memphis rode or died for the Memphis Grizzlies, specifically this GNG team. And as you said, Zach Randolph was an absolute beast in this series. And I got to say, I mean, just that down low, the entire team. But Marcus Gasol, Marcus Gasol, if you go back and you look at his series against the San Antonio Spurs, that man was putting up some numbers too. So, yeah, this was the first time that the foursome of Zach Randolph, Marcus Gasol, Mike Conley, and Tony Allen really took this team, I guess, to the next level where we always thought that they could possibly get. And, man, looking back at this team at the 2011 or at the 2010-2011 team, it's got a bunch of fun players on it. A lot of guys that I kind of forgot about that even wore a Grizzly uniform. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember when Rudy Gay went down, the starting small forward was Sam Young. And yeah. the fact that they went that far, you know, with 
a guy that didn't even really make it past his rookie deal. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Sam Young was huge for the Grizzlies. I mean, I know he didn't really stick around much longer after that, but without Sam Young being in that playoff series or being in the playoffs, you don't really have that run because, yeah, it's not like he was scoring a whole bunch, but if you, I mean, if you go back and you look at his numbers, he was still averaging like seven a game. But it was, I remember it was his defensive presence that was so important on the perimeter, helping out Tony Allen. He can kind of check some of the bigger guys on the, on the Spurs because if you go back and you look at the Spurs team, it's very different. It's, it's built completely different than the teams that you really think about, like their championship teams. They really kind of relied on big men. So I think the Grizzlies being big and being able to match them was a huge advantage because if you go back and look like Tony Parker and George Hill, Richard Jefferson, all those guys kind of did those thing, did their thing like Danny Green. But if you look at the big men and their stats, that's where you saw where the Grizzlies did their damage, specifically Marcus Saul and Zach Randolph down low. They were able to control Tiago Splitter, Tim Duncan, Antonio McDyess, Matt Bonner. They were able to – and even DeJuan De- De- Blair. How about a DeJuan Blair appearance? How the holy throwback right there. But this team was just able to really control this series in a way that I think it showed Grizzlies fans and the NBA as a whole, like, okay, this thing is probably sustainable because they are built on defense and download presence. And that was something back in 2010, 2011 that you could go very far in the NBA on. The three-point thing, the three-point revolution, I guess, wasn't around yet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that's really cool because when you look back on it, they're probably the last of its kind. We won't ever see really that like smash mouth, ground a pound. We're going to drag you into the 80s and 90s kind of style of play. I just think in today's system, uh, pace and space, three-point shooting, and just overall very heavy perimeter play, even from the big men. I mean, you see Jaron Jackson Jr. this season averaged six threes a game. So I think looking back on it, this GNG team is probably the last of its kind of what we'll ever see in the NBA. Absolutely. I think maybe the closest thing that we got to GNG since maybe like, I don't know, like maybe with the Thunder were kind of looking like last year and maybe even this year, they kind of try to pound you inside, but they still rely on that three point shot pretty heavily. And, they're a little bit more mid-rangey than other teams. But no, I absolutely agree with you. The Grizzlies were like the, the GNG era Grizzlies were kind of, it was absolutely the last of their own kind. And to your point, I mean, you can just look at Marc Gasol's career as, as, as an arc for the three-point thing. In 2010-2011, Marc Gasol was attempting zero three-point attempts per game. Now he's taken like three or four a game. And that just shows you right there how the game has changed. I mean, if you just go back and you look at the shot, shot, shot charts from the series, three-point shooting wasn't what teams were living and dying on. It was getting to the paint in those mid-range shots and trying to get high percentage shots at the rim. So it's a completely different NBA. I mean, getting ready for this, I went back and I watched uh, a game one, which is a game that we're going to talk about here in a minute, and it's a completely different style of basketball. I mean, just go look at the final scores. It's, it's almost a completely different basketball than you're watching in 2010 than you're watching in 2020. Absolutely. And with that game one, I think one of the coolest things that uh, doesn't really go as noticed. I mean, granted, when it happened, it was on a much larger scale. But Shane Battier hit that go-ahead three in the fourth quarter of game one to give the Grizzlies their first ever playoff win in franchise history. 
And I really think that was a very cool full circle because Shane Battier was the first ever drafted Grizzlies player. People forget that Pau Gasol was actually traded on draft night from Atlanta to Memphis. And, you know, Shane Battier was on all those teams that they didn't win any playoff games despite going to three straight playoff series against, obviously they're against some of the best teams of that decade. I mean, they played against a reigning champion, San Antonio Spurs, the first season of the seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns. And then this was before they had it to where, you know, the playoff format they do now where it's for the top four, it's the three division winners and then the best second place. As that top four? Yeah. So they used to do it where it was just the three division leaders were the top three seeds. And that Northwest division was super weak one year. And a 44-win Denver Nuggets team was a three seed, while like a 65-win Dallas team was the four seed. And the Grizzlies ironically had to play that Dallas team, even though they had just won 65 games. Right. No, I vividly remember that series because that was kind of the Dallas team that should have won a championship but didn't win a championship. And again, the full circle thing, how ironic is it that Dallas actually went to go win the NBA championship of this, this season that we're talking about right now? That's that's kind of another full circle thing there. But uh, I vividly, vividly remember that series because there was a game that the Grizzlies were up by like three or something or like two or three with like 10 seconds left or something. And I remember my whole family got around the TV and we were like, oh my God, we're about to win a playoff game. We're going to lose our minds. It's going to be awesome. Like, I think Brian Cardinal had just scored or something. I don't know. But all I remember is Dirk just hits a dagger in that game and just rips away the W from the Grizzlies. And just and then they, they just go on to just whoop the Grizzlies for the rest of the series. I will never forget how just devastating that dagger was when it went through the hoop. And I mean, it's, you know, um, your relationship with Dirk is very similar to a lot of Grizzlies fans. He tortured us for years. And that, I just, that moment specifically sticks out to me as the most torturous moment he had against the Memphis Grizzlies was hitting that shot to take away the first playoff win. Now I ask you this, if the Grizzlies have gotten a playoff win before the G and G era Grizzlies in 2010, 2011, do you think it would have been as special? And another question, would you actually trade, not win? Like, would you rather have the Grizzlies winning their first game against the Spurs in the playoffs, or would you rather have had them win one or two in one of those three playoff runs? Because personally, I kind of like how it turned out, you know? I I do kind of like how it turned out. I would rather have, I think, the first win be against the San Antonio Spurs in that game one, which led to a series win. I think that would be my choice. Um, I still think it would have been just as special just because of the magnitude. I mean, the Grizzlies, they were an eight seed going up against a one seed, as well as mm-hmm. Shane Battier, you know, really the first beloved Grizzly hitting that go-ahead three. I still think it would have been special. Right. So, But I would also have to go with that that game against Dallas in 2006 because I was at that game, and I was sitting in the section right in front of where Dirk made that three. So I, I think I'm going to trade it off for the first playoff one instead. That's fine. I'll accept that. And I mean, I'm, I will, I will be humble here and admit you have been with the Grizzlies in the, like 
from the very beginning. Like I was a, I was a huge Grizzlies fan as a, as a kid, but I didn't have season tickets or anything. So you got to see the playoff runs firsthand. So from like a, a legitimate kind of OG Grizzlies fan, like I, I would say I'm an OG Grizzlies fan, but I guess like hardcore diehard, like I'll give you the nod over me right now. What was it like for you seeing Shane Battier hit that shot in that game? Like, not only just because it was Shane, but as a Grizzlies fan waiting for this moment, like, can you try to, I guess, give us a glimpse into what you were feeling when that shot went in? Because I'll never forget it for me. I will never forget where I was in that moment. I guess this is one of those, I'll never forget where I was, just like what you said. I remember we had a big group of people over at my house and we were all like in the living room watching the game and we all just kind of like jump up and cheered when he made the shot. And it was just like that genuine excitement, you know, just we finally did it. You finally, and even if the Grizzlies wouldn't have won that playoff series, you still had that moment. Yeah. Would I still have that moment? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, It was weird because there was a feeling watching that game. When that shot went in, there was a feeling of the better team won. Does that make sense? And I remember when that shot went in, I was like, you know, I think they might actually have a shot in the series because going into it, of course, as a Grizzlies fan, you were like, oh, yeah, they have a shot to win the series. But in the back of our heads, it was the number one seed Spurs. They were really good that season. They had a fully healthy Duncan, Parker, and Ginobili. And, like, Danny Green was really starting to pick it up. That's when George Hill was really, really good that season. So I was like, okay, we might take one or two, but I don't think that they may win the series. But after game one and after seeing what Zach Randolph was doing, I had all the confidence in the world that we were going to take the series from then on out. Right. And then there's a question in there I want to ask you is, hypothetically, Shane Battier doesn't hit that shot. Do they still find a way to win the series? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because... I think getting one at getting game one in San Antonio put them on their heels because if they would have probably, because they won game two, I still think they probably would have won game two. So they would have come back to Memphis up 2-0 instead of it being 1-1. Now, I do think the Grizzlies would have taken one in Memphis. However, the Grizzlies coming back to Memphis already having one game just put them up in an advantage. And I think it shook the Spurs enough to where they were like, wait, what the hell's going on? So when the Grizzlies punched them in the mouth for the second time, it almost knocked them out. If the like, you see what I'm saying? Like the Grizzlies needed to get that first punch in on them because they were the underdog. If if the Spurs had taken Game One and that shot misses, I don't think the Grizzlies win the series. I do think they give them a fight and they probably take it to seven. But ultimately, I think the Spurs would have won. That that Game One win is just so important for a team trying to beat a one seed in the eight spot. Right, and I actually think it's really cool when you look back at it because that same question I asked of what happens if Shane Batty misses that shot. In Game 5, the San Antonio Spurs had their lucky shot, or not lucky shot, they had their clutch time shot as well. They had Gary Neal who had that straightaway bank shot 3 in Game 5. Right. And if he would have missed that, that would have been a five-game series. Like, done. Yeah. Dude, I'll, and I remember, I very, very vividly remember that shot because even when it went in, I remember looking at everyone and being like, we're going to win the next game. Like, you just kind of knew that they got lucky. You know what I mean? Oh, yo, yeah, I 
I totally understand that. Yeah. I think it was definitely one of those like, damn, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, it was one of those things. The Grizzlies were going back home where they had just won two games. And you just had that belief. like, okay, they can close it out here. There was a belief where it was like, okay, here it is. Time to put down the hammer. It was really that hammer nail coffin moment. Right. And also in, in game three back in Memphis, that first game where they won 91 to 88, I think it was so important that the Grizzlies had already won in San Antonio because in a close game at home for a new playoff team, having that confidence, knowing that you've already beaten this team and you can do it again, I think is also very important for just the confidence they had maybe going into that fourth quarter because they were able to put their foot down and really dig in when they needed to. So I think the game one, not only is it huge for the rest of the series, but it was just so big for the late game situations later on in the series because they knew that they could still beat this team. They had it, they already had it in their heads. It wasn't just some, just some, I guess, pipe dream. They were like, no, we can beat this team. So I I think knowing that was huge. And man, I mean, you, you've talked about it, but the Zach Randolph performance in this series is just, it's truly, it's something of legend in Memphis and I'm never going to forget it. Okay. Here. Perfect time for my next question. Was Zach Randolph the best power forward in basketball at this time? I think Zach Randolph was the second best power forward in basketball at this time, and I say that very confidently. I think Dirk Nowitzki was the best power forward in basketball. I think Tim Duncan was probably the third best power forward in basketball. But when you go back and you look at it, it was after Duncan's prime. Yeah, he'd win a ring or two after this series moving forward, but he was already, I think, 34 or 35 in this series. And if you go and you look at the numbers, Zach Randolph pretty much worked Tim Duncan in this series. So I'm going to take, take Zach Randolph as being the second best, best power forward in the NBA at, the, at this moment in 2010-2011. Absolutely. It's, you know, I'm going to take like a 30-second tangent and just say that that's a very good claim of – Dirk being the best because he had one of the best playoff runs we may ever see. I mean, he knocked off a very Easy. good Portland team, a defending champion Laker team, a, that upstart like OKC team, and then the the first season of the Heatles. I think that really submitted his case as a top 25 player of all time. Oh, absolutely. It was – I mean, it's this, – this playoff run – it's, it's Bill Simmons talks about it, how some rings should be weighted more than others. This ring is one of the highest rated rings, I think, in the history of the NBA. If you go and you look at the teams that he went through to have to beat and how they did it, it's truly unbelievable. I mean, how many Hall of Famers did they have to take down during that run? It's insane. And when you go back and you look at that Mavericks team, yeah, it, it was a good team, but that was Dirk. It was Dirk that had him do it. He had to go on an unbelievable run. And, yeah, they had – they had guys stepping up when they needed to, like Jason Terry. But at the end of the day, Dirk Nowitzki was definitely the best power forward in the game. But let's switch it back to Zach Randolph, man. Just what do you think made him so dominant back then? Was it just his ability to just bully people down low? Because I think that's got to be it. And also in this series, you kind of see the birth of of the relationship between he and Mark Gasol. You really see their dynamic start to, start to take over in this. Because, I mean, Mark, we've given him some – some crap over the years as Grizzlies fans for his rebounding. Dude was averaging 10 rebounds a game in this series. Oh, no, yeah, I agree. Um, I was just looking back at his, at even Mark Gasol's game logs, and he was averaging like 16 and 12 against Oklahoma City, but he also averaged two and a half blocks and almost two steals. It was just 
unheard of. Like, at least that was probably the most dominant we have seen Marc Gasol play from that pure big man standpoint because he is more of this finesse, mid-range oriented passing center. We never really seen him like bully people down low. And that was the first series or first time in basketball where you were like, okay, now I see why people said that Mark was a more aggressive pal. I was just going to say Mark's defensive presence that season was really what stepped up to me. I mean, dude was averaging almost two blocks a game and almost a steal a game. That's kind of, I think when you saw that he could be the, I guess the anchor of the defense along with Tony Allen on the perimeter, I think it's just this, 2010-2011 2010-2011 was truly the start of everything that we, uh, I guess, grew to love about this team. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. It was just, it was all super surreal. It was that first moment you can really see the city rally around this team. I remember being there at the airport when they first landed after that Game 7 in OKC, and it was just surreal. It was one of those, like, overwhelming moments where you saw the city unite and rally around this team and I don't think we had seen anything like that since in our lifetime aside from the 2008 national championship run Memphis Tiger team or even this year's Memphis Tiger football team I would agree with that yeah I would absolutely agree with that with the way that the city rallied around them yes I'm with that Mm -hmm. And back to your question about Zach Randolph and just why he was so dominant in that series. I don't think the Spurs, like the Spurs had a lot of good big men, but they didn't have a lot of good big men that could contain Zach Randolph. So, I mean, Tim Duncan, he had kind of like take turns. It was between like him and Gasol, but also too, Duncan was aging at the time. It was his 14th year in the <laughs> league. They also had a, I think Antonio Medice, it was in his last season. Tiago Splitter was a rookie at the time. I don't even know if he was playing minutes in the playoffs, but still a rookie very, big man had to go up against Zach Randolph. Yeah, good luck. And then Matt Bonner, granted he can shoot, but he can't defend Zach Randolph. And then for once, Zach Randolph had that height advantage at power forward when he had to go up against Dewan Blair. So I just think it was just a bad matchup for them. Right. And to your point about Tim Duncan's age, I mean, even the age of the Spurs, because Antonio McDyess was pretty up there in, in age by the time this series was going on. If you go back and you just look at the trends of the games, it was in the fourth quarter where Zach Randolph just absolutely ate their lunch. And in game one in the fourth quarter, Zach Randolph played 12 minutes. He shot 80% from the field. He had six rebounds and nine points. And he just, he just kind of did whatever he wanted to on the court. And when you go and you look at the Spurs' big men, Tim Duncan played nine minutes, zero points. Antonio McDyess played two minutes, zero points, zero blocks, zero steals. They just completely dominated him. And between the two of them, they only had four rebounds total. So Zach Randolph, he, it was almost like, man, he, just, he knew when they were on their heels and he would just punch him in the mouth. One thing I will – I know we said this a lot, but I'm never going to forget it. I'm never going to forget it. When Zach would catch that ball – on like, like I guess like 16 feet out, the buzz that would just start in the FedEx form because you knew that he was about to just embarrass his defender and just the excitement that the FedEx form had and just knowing that he was about to hit a jab step and, a, and just the most beautiful fadeaway, fadeaway J, man. It's, 
things like that. It, whenever I get down or sad, kind of in a time like this, just go back and watch them Zach Randolph jumpers. It's gonna it'll, it'll it'll heal your heart because it's just it's beautiful, man. It really is, and I think that his identity also being so perfect for Memphis. I think he needed that. Would you agree with that? Do you think that Zach Randolph would have been a, been able to become the Zach Randolph anywhere else but Memphis? Or do you think that Memphis had to be the destination for him? I think Memphis had to be the destination for him because the Grizzlies really didn't become, you know, legit until Zach Randolph joined the team. They kind of entered this, like, rebuilding period where they were accumulating all these young assets, you know, Mike Conley, OJ Mayo, Rudy Gay, Mark Gasol. They were just getting a lot of young players. And then they had just had the failed, the beat experience. So they just really needed that veteran that veteran voice. I always say that whenever you get the guys that you feel like your your core – go get that veteran and teach them how to win games. And that's what Zach Randolph did. And he just, and he was an all-star the season before this season. And then this one, it just really kind of submitted him as this Memphis folk legend. And probably when we, when it all comes down to it, he'll probably be one of the most iconic sports figures in Memphis. And one oh question God, I want to yeah. ask you is, do you what will it take for somebody to top what Zach Randolph did in this playoff run? Because I mean, we had that Mike Conley series in 2017, but they still lost that series. Will it take right. a f- finals run from Jaron or Jaw to top what Zach Randolph did in this playoff run? I think so. I think it would have to be that or either something with a level of heroics to it. Because as Memphians, as Memphis fans, we know we love a great story. We love a good storyline. We love a good, a good comeback story or, or something that we can root for, like an underdog. So I think it has to be something along the lines of that as long as it, if it's pure domination. Yeah, like if John and Jaron end up being this just holy hell duo and they just dominate the league, yeah, like they'll take the mantle just because championships – at the end of the day, have more weight than anything else. But let's say, knock, knock on every piece of wood around me, that the John Jaron era does not result in a championship. I think that it would have to take a run like this for them to take the mantle from him. And, I mean, also, I mean, when you think of Zach Randolph, it's weird because, yeah, this series may have been his, his greatest series, I guess, quote-unquote. But the one I think of the most is the series against the Clippers when he – when he basically made Blake Griffin his adult child that entire series. That's the one I think of when I think of Zach Randolph in Memphis because that was the whoop-that-trick series when he choked him out. He got him thrown out of the game. Chris Paul punched Marcus all in the nuts. Like, all that stuff went down in that series. That's what I think of when I think of Zach Randolph. Now, you said something that sparked something in my brain and something we haven't talked about yet. Your boy, O.J. Mayo, was on this team. Yo, Okay. So there is this play (laughs) I will never forget. I will never forget this play. I remember, I think it was Tony Parker was driving down and Darrell Arthur came out of nowhere and blocked him. And it sparks this fast break. And on the other end, OJ Mayo lobs it up to Darrell Arthur. He's sprinting down court and he jams it home. The arena's going nuts. It was like, it'll probably go down as one of the coolest plays I'll ever see. 
Dude, 1,000%. Because that was the last – I think that was game six. Was that game six? Because I think right after that, Antonio McDyess got thrown out of the game and he threw his mouthpiece across the court. And that was the moment where we were like, oh, my God, they're going to win. Oh, my God, they're going to win the series. I will ne- – I – a hundred percent remember that. I almost, I think I blacked out in the moment. Darrell Arthur Not, is so underappreciated in Grizzlies history, man. Sorry, sorry to burst your bubble, but this was game four and it was that game where uh, the Grizzlies, they won by 20. So it was, uh, then, it, then it must've been that. It must've been that one. I must've gotten the feeling like, okay, they're going to win the series. That must've been the feeling I had then. Absolutely. And so, one question I really just want to dive in on, and really the big overarching premise of this show is what happens if they just would have lost in the first round? Now that's a loaded question. Because the thing that we haven't really mentioned yet, that's kind of the cloud over this entire playoff discussion, is Rudy Gay. They lose this series. Let's be honest. The front office probably thinks to themselves they lost because Rudy wasn't in, in, in the game, in, in, wasn't playing. So that they would start to probably try to build around Rudy a little bit more, which means I don't know how long Tony Allen sticks around. You know what I mean? Like how long do some of the core pieces, the guys that really helped make this G&G era something special, if Rudy Gay became the focal point, if they said, okay, it's very clear that Zach Randolph and Rudy Gay needs to be our two main pieces moving forward instead of it being, okay, it's very clear that it needs to be Zach Randolph, Mike Conley, Tony Allen, and Marcus Saul. Those are two very different pathways. So I'm not sure if the G&G era really happens if, if they lose this series because it was just the start of so many things, and you kind of started seeing the wheels turn of some things that would come to fruition later on, like the relationship with Zach Randolph, and Marcus Saul, Mike Conley kind of becoming a floor general, Tony Allen wreaking complete havoc on the perimeter. I mean, if Rudy Gay doesn't go down, Tony Allen doesn't get those minutes. So we never, we never get the Tony Allen experience. So it changes everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree with that. I think Tony Allen would have become one of those role players over the course of the G and G era that kind of just went through this revolving door. It's like, okay, they're in and they're out. You look back and you're like, oh, wait, this guy was on our team kind of things. Right. I think that would have happened to Tony Allen. And also, too, like I think you would have seen a lot of questions about whether or not Mike Conley was the point guard of the future for the Grizzlies. Because I remember around this time, he had gotten that extension. And Matt Moore, of at the time, CBS Sports, also he's also known as Hardwood Paroxysm on Twitter. He had just written something about how Mike Conley was given the worst contract in basketball and and that he was the worst starting point guard in the NBA. And also around, I think a few seasons before that, the Grizzlies tried to trade him for Ramon Sessions and Joe Alexander to Milwaukee. So I think you would have seen a lot of questions about whether or not Mike Conley was the guy also. And I really think the future of the Memphis Grizzlies, if they didn't win that series, it would have affected them two the most, Tony Allen and Mike Conley. And as well as Rudy Gay for fats, it's like, okay, we need this guy. Right. No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's just, 
I just don't think that we would have seen this team reach the heights that it, that it did. I don't think that there's a Western Conference Finals appearance without this series win. I really don't because, like you said, if Mike Conley isn't the point guard of the future, we don't get the Mike Conley-Marcus All relationship. We don't get Tony Allen on the perimeter. We don't get Zach Randolph and Marcus All's relationship. We don't get any of that. And let, let me present this. Mike Conley gets sent off, let's say. No Tony Allen, that stuff. I even think that there may be a ripple effect that we can say, you don't win this series, you don't have John Morant on your team right now. Bro, that's deep. Like, that is just like... Because if you think about it, Mike was the final piece that we had sent off. He was the final man standing. And he helped them get those W's at the end of the season that, that pushed the Grizzlies into the percentage where they needed to be for this upcoming lottery. You don't have Mike Conley on this Grizzlies team moving forward because they lost this series and he gets some blame. You don't have John Rand as your starting point guard right now. That's really deep. And that is super deep. And that is all you could go through a lot of different rabbit holes to say, oh, wait, actually, yeah, he might have actually been the point guard in, by now. But very good insight there. Um, one thing I do think that could have also happened is I remember that 2013. Well, actually, yeah, they would have just traded instead of trading Rudy or in 2013, they probably would have looked to trade Mike or even they could have looked to trade Zach Randolph. We don't know because they would have been, like we've said, they would have realized how important Rudy Gay was. And I want to flip this back to the other side real quick. Either what happens with Rudy Gay or what if they win that OKC series? Do you think that was their best shot to win it all? Or one of their best shots to win it all? I think it was... Probably their second best shot to win it all during the G&G run. I I still think that the best shot that they had was that if they had won that Warrior series, I still tend to believe that they would have won the NBA title because they would have gone up against an injured Cleveland team and an exhausted LeBron James. And we had the personnel at at that time where I think they could have taken him down. I think that Dallas, we would have given them some issues because we were a really good matchup with them. But ultimately, I think Dirk and the Dallas Mavericks may have been the team of destiny that season. So they probably would have. They, I think that they would have probably taken out the Grizzlies, even if they did beat the Thunder. However, I think it would have been a fantastic series, and we, just, we would have gotten some more special moments from it. But I would say it's their second best behind the Warrior season when they, when they lost with the, with the mask game and the Tony Allen injury. Yeah, that's fair. I'll probably say the same thing. I probably do have them making the finals because I remember always thinking, and I looked this up earlier to validate, make sure I was right here. The Grizzlies won that season series against Dallas three games to one. And I do think that Mark and Mike were playing, or not Mark and Mike, Mark and Zach were playing some of the best basketball of any big men duo at that time. And just putting that pressure on Dirk defensively could have slowed him down offensively. On top of that, you would have had Jason Terry and Jason Kidd being chased around by Tony Allen and Mike Conley, who those are two very strong defensive duos in the backcourt. So I think 
I think it honestly would have been the best series possible between that Spurs series and then Oklahoma City Thunder series. And then also, too, I liked that matchup with the Heatles because they, at that time, because it was that first season salary cap stuff, they only had the big three of LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. And I think the Grizzlies could have really given them a run for their money and win it all that year, which would have been unheard of to go from an eight seed to winning it all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm with you in the sense that I think if they had gotten past Dallas, I think they could have beaten that Heat team because you, everyone knows I'm a LeBron stan. There's no way that team was ready to win a championship that year. LeBron wasn't ready. D-Wade wasn't ready. The dynamics of the team wasn't correct yet. D-Wade had yet to give the keys to LeBron. When he did that, it changed everything. So I'll concede the point to you. If they had made it to the finals – I'll say that I think that they could have possibly won that finals. It's it's just one of those where it's like they lost. It's it's they were so they've been so close so many times. So let's let's hope that we get a chance again with John Jeremy. I and I I feel it in my bones. I think we're gonna get a chance. Absolutely, and Connor, we're about running out of time here. But do you have any closing remarks here? Man, I'll just I don't know. It's uh, this is a team that. The G&G era Grizzlies, I think, for how lo- however long my fandom goes, man, it's uh, it's going to be hard to knock this team off the pedestal for me because it wasn't just their play on the court. It was their connection to the city, and it was how the city reacted to the team. And I know it, it, it can be corny or a little cheesy or whatever, but I, fe- I truly do feel like that the relationship that the G&G era Grizzlies had with the city of Memphis – cannot be replicated in any other city in America. I think there's something special about this town. There's something special about Memphis. I mean, the Believe Memphis moniker was something that I carried proudly and still do. When I go, like, my family goes to Universal Studios and Disney as much as we can. And every time I go, I make sure I have a Believe Memphis towel hanging around my neck as I'm walking around the park because this city gave the citizens gave Memphians something to be proud of. We already had things to be proud of of Memphis, but this was just kind of like a new national thing that we could point out and we could be like, see, Memphis is good. Memphis is good. And that's why this team always holds special because it wasn't just their on the court play. It was what they meant to the city off the court is why they're so special to me. You know, I couldn't put it better myself. Hey, Connor, tell the people where they can find you. Well, for now, listen to Giannato and Jeffrey every day from 2 to 4 CT. Unfortunately, because of the coronavirus, I am not actually in studio producing. However, I call in every day at around 2.45, and I tell people what to binge watch on Netflix, TV, movies, whatever. So I am your source for what you need to watch during all of this craziness going on. Everyone just stay safe. Uh, go follow me on, on Twitter at cdunny929 and just – Wash your hands, guys. Keep that social distancing up and just stay safe and pray for everybody. Absolutely, yes. During this time, make sure you're washing your hands and just being responsible, doing your part to, as they've been saying, flatten the curve. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Follow Grizzly Bear Blues on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies for all the great content, both on the web and on our podcast network and tune in for more revisionist grizzly